Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is an RNZ podcast. Hello, I'm Simon Morris. As we find ourselves pushed into this year's blockbuster season, it's time to not only count our blessings, but possibly keep an eye on the inevitable curses that go with them. On the plus side, it's fun to go to a movie that was given everything it asked for. A budget? Have one the size of a medium-sized country. Stars? More stars than there are in the heavens, as they used to say. The greatest technicians money can buy. The only thing they scrimp on is originality. Optimus, we must trust each other to protect the home we all share. How big can this guy be? Uh, he eats planets. So, like, way bigger than a planet. No, we won't be looking at the latest Transformers movie this week. In fact, if I had my wish, we may never have to look at it. But sadly, in the blockbuster season, there isn't much choice on offer. When the $100 million movies arrive, everyone else seems to run for cover. So how about we all just start shooting each other? That's what I came here for. Time to end this. Let's dig some graves. Now, I'm not sure why this is. Size alone is no guarantee of universal appeal. In fact, it's been a while since a genuine blockbuster has appeared in our cinemas. Something so intriguing and alluring that people literally queued round the block to see it. And usually its defining characteristic was it was something you'd never seen before. I'll be back. Well, say what you like about James Cameron, but you can't argue with his hit rate. Audiences were frothing at the mouth to see films like The Terminator, Titanic and Avatar. They had no idea what to expect. They only knew they couldn't wait to see it. I'm back. What should I tell your men when they find out you're gone? I'll be back. I'll be back. What? But that was then. Now, audience expectations are artificially generated the opposite way. If you like that, you'll like this, they say. You like it because it's often exactly the same. Hence the relentless Disney policy of taking their famous animated classics and remaking them in live action. Ah, Get off me, you fool! Oh, hey, didn't expect to find you here. And I really didn't expect to find her here. This week's blockbuster is the remake of The Little Mermaid. I'm sure the pre-teen set will flock to see it, but it seems a bit defeatist for everyone else to shut up shop until it's done its dash. But the fact is, there's very little competition this week. Do you really think you could take them on at their own game? It's a boss when you put it like that. Makes me really want to give it a go. Mm. Well, I'd put my money in Banker, Dave. Would you? Yeah.
feel-good movie Bank of Dave is based on a popular reality TV series. Though for some reason they forced a good story to go Hollywood with added romance, evil bankers, canny northern folk outsmarting city slickers and at the end heavy metal band Def Leppard pouring sugar all over everything. Step inside, walk this way. So, with the cinemas rather waterlogged this week, we find ourselves turning to the streaming services. And despite what people like Messrs Netflix, Neon and Prime tell us, these are not always chock-full of quality product. Holy smoke! This is real ooga-boonga music! Who can listen to this? Another, another classic, another sterling record in your brother's collection. Prime Video offered a choice of two films. On the one hand, a worthy semi-autobiographical piece called Armageddon Time, starring Anne Hathaway and Jeremy Strong. On the other, a totally unworthy film called Plane. How unworthy? Well, it stars Jared Butler. Captain Torrance, Flight Commander. How can I help you? Fugitive extradition. Oh, is he dangerous? What did he do? Homicide, 15 years ago. I don't want to scare the rest of the passengers. I'm afraid you're stuck with us, Captain. Get him on board, let's have a good flight. The affable Jared Butler first crossed my path in a sweet little movie called Dear Frankie, where he has to pretend to be a ten-year-old boy's long-lost father, the point being that the character couldn't actually act. Well, since then, Jared's taken that idea and run with it, in boneheaded thrillers like Plane, where he's given an approximate American accent and a name like Captain Brody Torrance. Mayday, mayday, mayday. Brody seems to be flying a plane with a convicted murderer aboard, straight into a thunderstorm, and they crash into a jungle somewhere. What happens next? Well, I'm not sure, but if you've seen any Jared Butler movie ever, you'll know there's only one person who can save everyone. In this case, Captain Brody Torrance. They were done somewhere in the Jolo Island cluster. It's run by separatists and militias. The Filipino army won't even go there anymore. The clock is ticking. Every minute matters. Now, it's an indication of my current impatience with non-blockbuster movies that I was almost tempted to see Plane. I mean, it's not trying to do anything except keep us awake and scoffing popcorn. I have a daughter, and I have every intention of making a home. Ah! They're going to come at us with everything they've got. We're getting off this island. But I'm a professional, and in the end I decided that Armageddon Time, a film that promises a deeply personal coming-of-age story about family and the pursuit of the American dream, was clearly superior to one that promises Jared Butler. But first, who's ready for another plunge under the sea? Ready or not, it's the return of The Little Mermaid. Up on the shore they work all day Out in the sun they slave away While we devoting full time to floating under the sea 
1989 Little Mermaid was the film that turned the Disney Studios' fortunes around after a string of uninspired animated features. It was a stone-cold classic, the sort that Uncle Walt used to make. It got everything right, a modern heroine, genuinely amusing sidekicks, some great songs and the clever Disneyfication of Hans Christian Andersen's romantic but tragic original. What I want from you is... Your voice. My voice? You've got it, sweet case. Oh, you've been turned into a human. Have you lost your senses completely? The human world, it's a mess. And for a solid decade, Disney animators could do no wrong. They followed The Little Mermaid with Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin and The Lion King, all original, deftly produced and enchanting. But for the last decade, Disney's decided to abandon original and enchanting in favour of simply duplicating what worked before. And here they go again. Wouldn't it be amazing to discover some place no one's ever seen before? Really? I would love to see that. When I give the signal, drop me. Got it. No, you, you idiot! The rationale is that what worked before will work again if it's given flashier 3D animation and new, more relevant performers. I've seen no evidence that this is the case, incidentally. The audience I saw this Little Mermaid with were clearly indoctrinated already, calling out favourite plot points as they happened. Hey, you listen to me, bird. The king can never hear this. We are going to forget this ever happened. Ariel! Ariel! Sorry about that! Still, comparisons being odious, let's all pretend this is the original movie. And we open on a ship above the sea where Prince Eric is having some difficulty in a storm. All hands on deck! Abandon ship! Under the sea, we meet mermaid Ariel, who it seems is fascinated by the world of humans. Despite the warnings of her father, the king of the sea, she hangs around the shore and, of course, regularly bursts into song, explaining why she's doing it. I want to be where the people are. I want to see, want to see them dancing, walking around on those, what do you call them? Oh, feet. Actually, breaking my ignore-the-original-movie rule for a moment, my complaint about most films from the Disney renaissance of the 90s was that they tended to overdo the songs a bit. Did we really need a song about every twist of the plot? Up where they walk, up where they run, up where they stay all day in the sun, wandering free, wish I could be part of that world. Apparently we do. In fact, the remake goes even further. Original songwriter Alan Menken and new lyricist Lin-Manuel Miranda have written even more songs, all a solid two or three minutes long. Check the code, man! Over here! Anyway, Ariel saves Prince Eric and then flees before he can get a good look at her. This doesn't go down with either Eric's mum, the Queen of Dry Land, or Ariel's dad, the Undersea King. You broke the rules. You went to the above world. A man was drowning. I had to save him. This obsession with humans has to stop. I just want to know more about them. 
Ariel obsesses over Eric because, well, you know, love at first sight, hands Christian Anderson. And despite the advice of her comedy sidekicks, a crab, a gannet and a fish called Flounder, she decides to get help from Ursula, the evil sea witch. Ariel, don't! Poor child. I can help you. You can't live in that world unless you become a human yourself. Is that even possible? <laughs> it's what I live for. Ursula, a tentacled Melissa McCarthy, arranges one of those fairy tale deals where Ariel can become human, but with all sorts of strings attached. She can't talk, she has to kiss the prince before midnight, that sort of thing. But at least the tale's gone. Something about you seems different. I can't quite figure it out. She got legs, you idiot. The Little Mermaid rests on the appeal of the star Halle Bailey, who's perfectly fine, by the way. She and the director, musical veteran Rob Marshall, are essentially giving us a high-tech Broadway version of the original film. And like all Disney's past live-action remakes, you can't deny so much work by so many people has gone into this one. And yet, it remains a cover version. And a cover version, no matter how faithful, would always miss that spark of inspiration that made people fall in love with the original. It's the difference between karaoke and Caruso. Meanwhile, photoreal animation brings its own problems. Sometimes it's too real. Your father wants you to stay as far away from the human world oh. as possible. Can you help me? Ariel killed the prince yet? Not kissed, your bird brain. With a hand-painted animated shark, a lot can be suggested. A photo-real shark is a big, scary, Jaws-type monster. And same with Ursula the Sea Witch when she gets big and threatening at the end. She looks like something from Cloverfield. Coming out of it afterwards, the six to ten-year-old seemed mostly happy enough, but I couldn't help noticing that there seemed to have been a lot more toilet breaks throughout the film than if they'd been truly gripped. Or maybe it was just all that water. He's a human. You're a mermaid. That doesn't make us enemies. I'd never heard of Bank of Dave until it turned up at the cinemas this week. But that's because I don't watch a lot of reality TV. The original Bank of Dave was an observational series about a businessman called Dave Fishwick who wanted to start a small bank in Burnley, Lancashire. His argument was that he couldn't do worse than the professionals. <laughs> 50 billion quid. How can you lose 50 billion quid and still pay bonuses? Dave's beef was that the people who pretty much caused the global meltdown 16 years ago then had the cheek to award themselves massive bonuses as if they'd done a good job. So Dave decided to set up a bank for the community. This is my idea. I open a tiny little bank in Burnley Centre with very low overheads. 
Not really up to much, is it? No. Give people 5% interest on the savings. We then take that money and lend it out to local people. The success of the TV series inspired interest in a movie. And being movie folk, the producers of the new Bank of Dave decided to improve on the documented facts. Enter the totally fictitious young lawyer Hugh, played by Joel Fry, who's sent to Burnley to take advantage of the locals. What, you mean like classic feel-good movie local hero? Exactly. Burnley? Come on, Clarence, that's a bit much, isn't it? Get turned into the direction, pour down on left, right over at Main Road, and Dave's is on right. Oh, thank you. Bloody Londoners. Hugh meets Dave, a lovable northern chap with a dream. That's when he's not down the local karaoke bar singing old Def Leppard songs. Now, you may wonder whether this is going somewhere. Don't you worry. Everything in Bank of Dave is going somewhere. Welcome to Burnley. He's a lawyer and he's from London, but don't hold that against him. The Financial Regulation Board hasn't approved a new bank in 150 years. We've got Google up here too, you know. Up in Burnley, Hugh the lawyer meets the gorgeous Alexandra, who's not only trying to raise money for a much-needed clinic, but is also Dave's niece. Now, you may have spotted the similarity to other old feel-good movies like Brassed Off. Is there a chance that Alexandra and Hugh might hit it off at some stage? Dave could do some good for Burnley. It's a quality of life. Every penny of profit goes straight to local charities. Sounds brilliant. Not as daft as a look, am I? There's every chance. Remember what I said before about most things in Bank of Dave being there for a purpose. Though I warn the producers that if all the blokes start getting their kit off and going the full Monty, I'm leaving. So, what do you think? About what? This bank thing. Well, last time I checked, you saw minibuses. Yeah, I know, but, you know, a bank that serves the whole community. You as a banker? No fear of that, though just about everything else from every working-class British feel-good movie ever made seems to have been thrown in the pot. First of all, we meet a bunch of salt-of-the-earth folk of Burnley, all dripping with rough diamond decency. The sort of thing you don't get down in that London, as Hugh mentions regularly. This isn't about making money. It's about the whole community. Burnley's constantly surprising me. Hey, Alice. It's a pretty part of the world. That may be out for you yet. Oh, shut up. <laughs> But to really lay this on with a trowel, and Bank of Dave is all about laying everything on with a trowel, we need some big city rat bags. In this case, it's a rare heavy role for the normally decent Lord Downton, Hugh Bonneville. The FRB exists to make sure that people's hard-earned money is entrusted to the right kind of chap. Clearly something has to change. You want to take them on in the court of public opinion? I want the truth. Oh, you can't handle the truth. No new bank has received a licence for decades and the regulation board will bend over backwards to make sure Honest Dave doesn't get one either. To do that, they resort to skullduggery, legal manipulation and the worst kind of insider trading to make sure Dave, Hugh and Alexandra don't get what they deserve. The banks are law unto themselves. Justice here is no less important. Once ordinary people get in on our business, the floodgates will open. Makes me really want to give it a go. Dave, incidentally, is played by the modestly likeable Rory Kinnear, son of Lancashire comedy star Roy. 
Rory certainly looks the spitten image of Dave Fishwick, but you suspect his dad would have been a better fit for the character. The real-life Dave Fishwick is bumptious, confident and larger than life, a natural comedian rather than a serious former Shakespearean actor. This one thing you have on your side... Everybody hates bankers. Precisely. This is one of the biggest bands in the world doing a concert for Burnley. The actual story of The Bank of Dave was so enjoyable and entertaining it really didn't need all the fake feel-good movie clichés it gets here. And yes, it really does end with Def Leppard popping up to stage a concert to save Dave. Surely not like the cheesy old Cliff Richard movie The Young Ones. Indeed. The fact is, the naming and shaming of the bank's appalling behaviour after the global financial crisis that was highlighted by Dave Fishwick's real-life bank didn't need the sweetening it received in the movie. I like Rory Kinnear, I like most of the performers in Bank of Dave, including Def Leppard, but frankly, they should have poured a little less sugar on it. We're sending a message today. Enough of your greed. There's a better way. It's generally not a good sign when a serious-looking movie with impressive credentials finds itself relegated to prime video with a minimum amount of hoopla. James Gray's Armageddon Time, for instance, clearly autobiographical, it suffers from the obvious comparisons with Steven Spielberg's more popular The Fablemans. So it got on the boat and we came over here to America, the land of dreams. You just want to be like you. I want you to be a whole lot better than me. Where Spielberg's Jewish family live in movie-mad California, Gray's Graf family are New Yorkers. Armageddon Time is also set a little later in the early 80s when Ronald Reagan was running for president. The United States stands for an idea whose time is now. Ronald Reagan will win tonight. What a schmuck. <laughs> Meet the family. Mum and Dad are played by Anne Hathaway and Succession's Jeremy Strong. Grandpa is played by the world's least likely New York Jewish grandpa, Sir Anthony Hopkins. They explain his accent by saying he was brought up in Liverpool, overlooking the fact that he's also the world's least likely Liverpudlian. I think I want to be an artist when I grow up. You're going to be an artist if you want to be. Nothing's going to stop you. You're going to college. You'll have dinner with kings if he plays his cards right. Mm -hmm. But our hero is young Paul, just starting high school. His dream is to draw comic books. His parents are horrified. They insist he's going to make something better of himself, which means not hanging out with low-life undesirables. I really like your stickers. My stepbrother gave them to me. He's in the Air Force. That's so cool. <laughs> How dare you! A menace to you! But within a couple of days at school, Paul is getting in trouble with his new best mate, Johnny, who happens to be black. Mum shows her hypocrisy, and Hathaway is nothing if not a good sport, by being both ultra-liberal and regularly racist. She decides to send Paul to a better class of school. Well, you're not to associate with him again. What do you mean? Why? I think you know what I mean. 
Well, if mum's nothing to write home about, dad is borderline psychotic. If he's not flaring up in violent rages when he can't get his own way, he's manically singing at the top of his lungs when he wakes up Paul to go to his new school. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Rise and shine and don't be a lug nut. Wake up. You start to wonder if writer-director James Gray realises quite how unappealing his presumably real-life family comes across. They're tribal Democrats. They're convinced that the minute Ronald Reagan is elected, he'll start World War III. Yet they're equally certain the only way young Paul can succeed is by enrolling in an exclusively right-leaning Republican school. Something's bugging you. What is it? Sometimes kids say bad words about the black kids. Who's there? Somebody from my old school. Did they ever come to your house? What do you do when that happens? Obviously nothing, of course. You think that's smart? Paul hates private school, Forrest Manor, particularly his bigoted classmates. He can't talk to his mum and dad about it, understandably. I mean, I wouldn't talk to Mr and Mrs Graff about the weather. But at least he can open up to Liverpool, Liverpudlian, New Yorker Grandpa. My mother, you know, when we came over here, we didn't have much. Why'd she come here? Because they wanted to kill her, that's why. They were soldiers, and sometimes they'd go out looking for Jews. They hated us then, and they still hate us. And even phoning it in, Anthony Hopkins can bring focus to the scenes he's in. There are two conflicting messages here, that you need to behave well to be a mensch, a decent human being. But since life is unfair, you should take any advantage you can get, unfair or not. Life is unfair. Be thankful when you get a leg up. You make the most of your break and do not look back. All my hopes are with you and your brother for my whole life. And nowhere is this more clearly shown than in the Trump family, the real-life alumni of James Gray's own old school. The future president doesn't feature, but his sinister father, Fred Trump, does, as well as his sister, Marianne, a chilling performance by Jessica Chastain delivering an end-of-term speech to Paul's schoolmates. In this institution, you can be anything you want to be. It won't be because of a handout. It'll be because you earned your way there. Armageddon Time is an oddly off-balance film. Most of the elements in it, after all, are reliable audience pleasers. It's a coming-of-age story, a plea for social justice, a New York family drama. It's mum, dad, grandpa and the death of disco and the sinister rise of neoliberalism. And yet it doesn't work at all. Next time those schmucks say anything bad about those kids, you're going to say something. You're going to be a match, OK? Firm handshake. OK, give me a hug. Maybe every filmmaker about to launch an autobiographical tale of his childhood, James Gray here, Spielberg's Fablemans, Kenneth Branagh's Belfast, should be reminded that just because it's true doesn't mean it's convincing. It takes a literary genius to translate the personal to the universal. And there isn't a literary genius anywhere near Armageddon time. It's currently playing on Prime Video. Still, one thing that's undoubtedly true is this is the end of today's show. I'm Simon Morris, and I hope you'll join me at the movies same time next week. 
Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.